All right, welcome in everybody to this episode of Mythic Existence. Today we are going to be talking about legends, and in particular, what folklorists call contemporary legends. We'll try to reach an agreement on a definition of what a legend is, talk about what makes legends traditional in the folkloristic sense, and what it means for a legend to be contemporary. So sit back, relax, and enjoy another episode of Mythic Existence. So I'm sorry that I've kind of had a break from podcasting over the last probably six or eight weeks. Um, You know, it's it's just been kind of a, a difficult year for all of us, but I've got a lot of, you know, moving pieces, uh, new job stuff, things like that, that have been kind of uh, grabbing my attention more so than, uh, you know, I would have liked for the podcasting purposes, at least. Um, I'm in the process of trying to make a Patreon for the channel, and I don't have it up yet. I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to actually you know have behind the paywall and what like my tiers are going to be for it but you know um i think that that'll be a good thing to do if you're listening to the episode go just google mythic existence patreon because it might be up by the time you're listening to this um you know if i could get 20 people pitching five dollars that would be amazing that'd be a hundred dollars a month and Um, you know, it takes a lot of time and effort for me to just make one episode because I'm often doing, you know, pretty heavy research for just, for just the one episode. It can take many, many hours. And so, so far the, the payback hasn't been quite there for me as far as how much time I've been getting and going into it and, um, you know, stuff like that. So even just a few bucks for, to cover the costs of me being able to even post my episodes to Spotify and podcasts because that costs money. Stuff like that would be terrific. So um, think about subscribing to the Patreon uh, when I get that up. And if you follow me on, on social media, I'll have you know links and stuff like that information there. And in future episodes, I'll talk about it more. But I'm trying to also kind of reconfigure some of what my episodes are going to be like. I would like to start doing more interviews with folklorists mainly, but also people that kind of study the adjacent stuff that we've covered on other episodes, more like historical topics. So it's not the best time for that right now because a lot of the people that I know that are in grad school and uh, you know, in, in master's programs and PhD programs, it's, it's April right now. So this is kind of their big, biggest time. But especially once like the summer comes around, I would like to start interviewing more people. And um, I'll, I'll reach out to you, but you can also definitely reach out to me if you're listening to this podcast and you think that that's something that you might be interested in. Just, uh, I mean, you know, you can you can message me on Twitter or Instagram on the pages that I have. I'm not very hard to find on social media for that type of thing. Um, so just find a way to get a hold of me and uh, we'll see if we can get you on. So that's kind of the update for this, the, the podcast in general. Today's episode uh, is I'm kind of doing a, a practice run actually for a, a guest lecture that I'm going to be doing tomorrow at Penn State University for Rachel Ross, who is a PhD student 
in folklore and American studies at that university and that I, I was a master's student with. So um, I'm kind of just making sure that I've got all of my, you know, thoughts gathered and that I'm, I'm ready to do that. And I thought that it would be a good way to do a practice run, which would be to record the podcast episode for us. So today's episode might not be quite as long because I'm trying to limit my length to 20 minutes on that guest lecture. So I'm not going super into detail. But anyway, today's episode is largely based off of, let's see if I can get in the frame, this book right here, Aliens, Ghosts, and Cults, Legends We Live by Bill Ellis. It's one of the biggest texts in legend studies. And especially the first uh, four or five chapters, the first part of the book is kind of a big overview of legend theory and basically, you know, legend studies in folklore. So that's going to be mainly what I'm covering. I think it's going to be a really interesting discussion to have. So to start off, we're going to be talking about what a legend is. So there's been some controversy in defining the difference between tales and legends in the study of folklore. Originally, there were three ori- three criteria for legends. This isn't what it still is. There's Bill Ellis kind of changed a lot of the discussions about the def- definitions, but the three original criteria for a legends were departure from objective truth, the degree to which the narrator believes them, and legends as being a peculiar form of narrative. So the problem with this is that the first criteria supposes that the collector is more in touch with the reality than the folk is. And that's something that we've talked about is that one of these main things that folklorists are trying to do is kind of expunge that elitism of, you know, the folklorist compared to the, the folk and this whole dichotomy of educated versus non-educated, urban, rural, all of that. And as we've talked about in other episodes, you know, we are all the folk. We're all folk that are creating lore. And folklore takes an even-leveled approach where the the person creating the lore is, you know, speaking for themselves, really. So the second criteria, however, um, that the legend is supposed to be believed by the narrator, the audience, or by both, is something that is really kind of stressed because... Um, And one thing that's kind of difficult for folklorists as far as collecting legends as their presence might actually influence the narrator in how they're actually telling the story. This is something that has been referred to as the Heisenberg principle of folklore, where basically, yeah, like the it's very hard to actually collect a legend in its particular narrative context. So that's something that I wanted to mention. Um And this man, uh, Svetin Todorov, says that a narrative begins with a stable situation and ends with another such stable situation. And in between, something occurs that upsets this equilibrium. And Bill Ellis applied this to legends by saying that um, a legend is a narrative that 
that challenges accepted definitions of the real world and leaves itself suspended, relying for closure on each individual's response. So it doesn't actually, it doesn't close that equilibrium back. It's stuck in a disequilibrium. So a couple of other points I want to hit on before we move to the next portion is that legends are not necessarily their their plots themselves, but also the social impetus to create new narratives out of the old. And as we'll see, legends are often repackaging old stories, old legends that date back millennia. And so that's what really what we're looking at is the cultural attitudes that underlie them. And they're really a, a communal exploration of social boundaries. So next I want to talk about when a legend is traditional. So for folklorists, the two main things that we look for to identify a piece of folklore is variation and tradition. Variation means that there's at least two different forms of th- something and tradition or traditional traditionality means that it's passed on. And so the audiences play a large role in the legend telling themselves. And one great example of contemporary legends are scary stories that are told at summer camps. And the summer camp is a great place for this because they the summer camp itself is in a liminal place between wilderness and civilization, as well as the camper's liminal, liminal status between being children and adults. And it's an area that kind of requires a suspended disbelief. And an example that Ellis gives for it is this dismembered hermit story that he collected from a single narrator who was a camp counselor at a place called Longview, which was for kind of uh, suburban white middle-class kids. And the version that of the same story that he told at the Hiram House, which was a summer camp for inner-city disadvantaged Cleveland youth who were nearly all black. So the quick kind of rundown of the story is there were two men, Ralph and Rudy, who were brothers. Ralph drinks and Rudy doesn't. One day, Ralph comes home drunk, and they get in a fight, and he cuts off Rudy's head. And then he's kind of stalking around the camp, Ralph is, with Rudy's head in his hand. The camp owner's wife sees him, and then the campers see him with Rudy's head. And this is kind of like a, and that's the end of the story, is the campers see, they actually see him uh, at their camp. And so... This story is kind of like a Jekyll and Hyde type story where Ralph is the id and symbolizes impulsive behavior while Rudy is the super ego figure that attempts to impose restrictions on Ralph's pursuit of pleasure. And really what the story is doing is it it serves a warning against pushing back on suburban mores and traditional authority. And the, the counselor, he says that he basically told the story to get the kids to stay in their tents because, you know, there's this crazy guy out there. And so you better not go out after dark because, you know, Ralph is waiting for you and he's a homicidal maniac. So it was a way to 
reinforce that the, the counselors are the ones in power and you better listen to what we're saying. However, at Hiram House, this didn't quite fly. So he had to change how the story went. And he kind of, in this version, he picked up, he said, all right, next summer, this count, the, the counselor was there. He, he put himself into the story. He was at the camp. And he knew that Ralph was around. And Ralph came and actually broke into his cabin. And the counselor had a bat with him because he wanted something to protect himself. And he, he actually hits Ralph with the bat. And he breaks a bunch of his ribs. But later on, he sees Ralph again, who was still lurking around the camp and was basically hunting this counselor down. So he's after him. So instead of the the campers being the ones that were in risk, it actually becomes the counselor that was violating these cultural taboos and as a result is putting himself in the power of uncanny forces. So the narrative tradition was not about producing conformity, but by but rather reversing conventional hierarchy. And this kind of takes us into a topic that legend scholars talk about a lot, which is ostension. And what ostension is, is it's a dramatic extension into real life. And there's kind of the openness that's that's put into the believable aspect of this narrative that is going to actually influence how the campers act. So they're going to act differently because of the knowledge that Ralph might be out there. It's going to influence their actions. Um, and so that's kind of one of the points of, of the open-endedness of narratives, uh, of legends in particular, is to have this proto-drama that is played out after the fact. Okay, then I want to talk about when legends are contemporary. And a folklorist named Jan Harald Brunband, he said that whatever is new and puzzling or scary, but which eventually becomes familiar, may turn up in our folklore. So that's a lot what contemporary legends are dealing with. And the term urban legend, which is oftentimes what people talk about, has come under scrutiny, and it's not the preferred term by folklorists. And the main reason is that, you know, not all of these examples circulate in cities, and it goes back to that kind of complicated history and folklore of the urban and the rural, um, of the elite and the lesser educated. And so contemporary legend has become the more accepted term. And what it's meaning to connotate, it's not that the legend is contemporary when the folklorist finds it, it's that they were considered to be modern or immediate in their original context. So we can have ancient contemporary legends. And so basically it was seen as contemporary in the time that it was circulating. And a lot of the legends that circulate today have origins in historical records. For example, Stories of diseased blankets can be found in the Nessus shirt from the myth- mythology of Hercules, and also stories about things like economical carburetors and everlasting light bulbs parallel ancient stories of suppressed inventions such as unbreakable glass. 
So it's important that we don't just look at the content of ancient contemporary legends, but at the context. So to give you an example of a legend today kind of dating back to a more ancient context can be seen in stories of gang initiation legends um, and ritual sacrifice legends that have circulated. So in the 60s and 70s, there were legends going around about black boys being found guilty of castrating white boys at shopping malls as part of a gang initiation. And during the satanic panic of the 1980s, there was legends involving stories of mutilation and human sacrifice. And none of these ever led to a successful prosecution. But the same sort of legend was being told in the 2nd and 3rd centuries AD in Rome about Christian mutilation practices. So there's stories that Christians were committing infanticide and doing ritual sacrifice as part of like an initiation into the religion. So Ellis has identified four traits that are present in these legends. First is that they spread rapidly as account uh, as accounts of actual recent happenings. The second is that in official investigations were they found no firsthand witnesses. The third is that the culprits were ethnic, religious, or political groups that were rising in prominence and that the stories expressed existing anxieties and taboos that uh, were held by the established majority. So those last two are the really, really important parts that, you know, these are stories that the majority are telling about minority groups that ex- that express anxieties or taboos that they had. And that's really what contemporary legends do, especially, you know, if you look back at the other, the, those camp stories that we told, it, it was, um, you know, it, it was a way of expressing anxieties or taboos. So um, to, to kind of close this out, I want to talk about this idea of the half-life of a legend Um, folklore often draws metaphors from other areas of study in particular biology and we have the idea of the meme which is a play on the word gene and that was you know originally created by Richard Dawkins but uh, memes are really folkloristic in nature and because they're kind of you know these ideas that come up they circulate, they vary, and then they sort of die out. And so there's this idea of the half-life of a legend. And that's, that's drawn from the half-life of a radioactive particle. It's at its peak at the start, and then it decays, basically. So the five aspects of the life of a legend are uh, it provides an individual the ability to identify an uncanny, uncanny event or a social stress. So it names a marginal experience. Second, it shares this experience through language with others. It becomes a finished narrative. Then fourth, it it no longer requires performance, and it becomes a metonym or a kernel narrative. And a kernel narrative is basically where the entire story is present in a single term. An example of that is... Bill Gates is the Antichrist, which is a kernel narrative that is going around in, you know, conspiracy theories 
today and conspiracy theories are are basically contemporary legends in themselves and when it decays it becomes dormant so to understand a legend we need to understand when it is and to survive legends will take on different forms in different times Bilal says that nothing new should be a a motto for studies of contemporary legends and that our modern folklore is often human anxieties in a new contemporary cloak. So that's it for today's episode. We have seen how legends are believable stories that take place in historical time and historical place, often with a supernatural element, that they give a marginalized experience a voice, that they often express fears and anxieties and are constantly being repackaged for new contexts. Thanks for listening. See you next time.